All right, amen. Have a seat if you would. And if you got your Bible, uh, let's go back to Ephesians chapter 6. And um, we're going to finish up talking about the armor of God today. And then next week, Lord willing, uh, talk about uh, prayer from the end of this text. And then the Sunday after Thanksgiving, uh, the plan is to finish up the book of Ephesians. And I hope hearing that does not ruin your Thanksgiving, but uh, we finally arrived after 50-some messages. So, um, so on October the 27th, 1861, one of the greatest preachers, pastors who ever lived, uh, preached a sermon uh, from part of the text that we're going to look at today, talking about the, the shield of faith. And Charles Spurgeon started his sermon with these words, like the Spartans, every Christian is born a warrior. And I love this next sentence. It's his destiny to be assaulted. It's his duty to attack. And I think it's a pretty good summation of what we've been reading in this passage. He goes on to say part of his life will be occupied with defensive warfare. He will have to defend earnestly the faith once delivered to the saints. He will have to resist the devil. He will have to stand against all his wiles and having done all still to stand. And so... That's what we've been talking about in, in this series, that we're in a spiritual uh, battle, that there is a battle spiritually going on behind the battles we fight in the physical flesh and blood uh, kind of realm. We may think we're having a battle with the boss, but there's a battle behind that. We may think we're battling with our spouse or with a child, but there's a battle behind that. We may be having a health battle or a financial battle or whatever it may be, but there is a battle that's going on behind that. God tells us here to stand firm, not in our own strength, but in His strength. And what we've seen is the way that we put on God's strength is by putting on Christ, by putting on this armor that He's talked about. We've talked about you know, the foundation being truth. Uh, we've talked about our offensive weapon being the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We've talked about last week putting on uh, righteousness. That we're going to stand against Satan's accusations that we have to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, living uh, righteous lives. We talked about uh, you know, putting on the gospel of peace, being at peace with God, having the peace of God, being at peace with others. And so uh, today we're going to look at these last couple of pieces uh, of armor, and we're going to, the way I'm going to present them is kind of the inverse uh, the, of how it, the order in the text, but uh, let's just read these couple of verses here, Ephesians 6, 16, and 17. It says, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and it was common in ancient warfare uh, for them when they shot arrows to literally set them on fire. And, uh, you know, the, the shield then that was often, you know, doused in water would protect against that. And then he says to take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So as we've talked about, the big idea here is we are equipped to fight our spiritual enemy by putting on the armor of God. And so today we're going to see that we're told to put on salvation, and to put on faith. And so we're going to start by talking about salvation. So 
number one, I want us to see today that we equip ourselves for this spiritual battle, for this fight, by putting on the security of salvation. And, and I hope you see as we go, uh, I call this the security of salvation, that there's different aspects of salvation. Um, I mean, it literally, obviously you would have to be saved to put this on, but, um, you know, he's speaking to Christians here. So when he talks about putting on the breastplate of salvation, he's not saying get saved again or something like that. Uh, he's saying to stand firm, to be secure in, to understand to live out of our salvation. So, uh, but he uses this analogy here of, of the helmet of salvation. And uh, a couple of authors that I've quoted over the last couple of weeks describe it this way. They say a good helmet is an invaluable piece of equipment. Properly worn, it protects the head, a most vulnerable and vital part of our bodies. Soldiers in the thick of battle certainly need one, for without it, any blow to the head would be debilitating, if not fatal. Commentators tell us that the helmets worn in ancient warfare were either leather or metal and were designed to protect soldiers' heads from blows by swords or clubs. The helmets included place to protect the cheeks, a band for the forehead, and a collar-like projection to protect the back of the neck. And... It wasn't exactly like this, but to me, maybe the easiest way to envision this would be a football helmet or, you know, the combination mask helmet that uh, modern day catchers wear in baseball. So maybe to help us envision this, uh, just a second, we're going to show you a little video clip, okay? And uh, this is something... Uh, I used a sermon illustration last week from when I was on my way to have lunch with Preston. I actually just kind of caught this out of the corner of my eye while we were having lunch. It comes from a football game. It's just about 20 seconds, so watch this. Now, let me just tell you, this is something that's always been a mystery to me. This is football fights. Football fights have always been a mystery to me because my question is, what's the point of punching a guy in the head when he's wearing a helmet? Am I the only one that this is not logical? I mean, if you're going to punch him, why not punch him in the gut or... Take, I'm not saying you should do this, but take a cheap shot on the next play or something. I mean, what's the point of punching somebody in their helmet? It seems like to me there's a much higher likelihood of you breaking your hand than, you're in, than there is of you actually hurting the person that you're punching in the helmet. Now, on the other hand, if this guy came up and sucker punched this guy the way that he did without a helmet on, I say there's a really good chance that that guy would be going to the hospital. The difference wasn't the punch. The difference was the helmet. And so what Paul is saying to us here is Satan's going to punch us 
the result is not about whether or not we get punched. The result is whether or not we're wearing our helmets. And he says the helmet that we're to wear is the helmet of salvation. Now, a helmet would guard the head, and our heads, at least theoretically, contain our brains. And so it's talking about guarding our minds, right? And so Romans 12, 2, for example, other scriptures tell us the same thing. Romans 12, 2 says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Experience a metamorphosis uh, by the renewing of your mind. In other words, the way to have a changed life is by having changed thinking. But the, but the question here then in this particular text becomes, is how does salvation guard our minds when it comes to spiritual warfare? Does that make sense? Because he says the helmet of salvation, he's speaking to people who are already saved. And so, once again, he's not saying go get saved again. He's saying put on this helmet to guard our minds. But if we're already saved, how does this work? How do we put this on to guard our minds? Well, let me try to explain this because I, I think if we uh, get this today and we'll apply this today, uh, uh, this battle but behind the battles that we fight, that it's going to be hard for Satan to be real effective with us because I think a, a lot of times Satan's lies, Satan's deception has to do with, you know, when we blow it, well, are you really saved? Has God really forgiven you? Does God really love you? I mean, if all this is real, how could you still be this way? And on and on and on. So we talk about salvation in the Bible. The word means to rescue or deliver. So just, I mean, a simple word picture of it would be is if Shane and Travis were out at the lake one day and something happened and Travis was, was drowning and Shane jumped in, and he pulled him uh, to the sh shore. He brought him from death to life. He rescued him. He saved him. He delivered him. That's, that's what salvation is. The cross is God's great rescue mission, where Jesus jumped in to the pool of our sin through the cross and brought us from death to life, brought us to the shore of safety by his blood. He saved us. He rescued us. He delivered us. Now, when we think about salvation, there's a couple of important words. There's security and there's assurance. Because basically, there's four types of people when it comes to salvation. You can be saved and know it. You can be saved and not know it. You know, there's people who are Christians and aren't sure of it. You can be unsaved and know you're unsaved, or you can be unsaved and think you're saved. Your assurance is not your salvation. Hopefully, if you're saved, you have a true assurance of a genuine salvation. But you can be saved and not have assurance of it at a given moment. You've been there, I've been there. In fact, I would say if you are saved, you probably do doubt it sometimes because you question yourself and you have to come to the point of learning to not look at yourself of looking at Christ because that's someone who's truly saved. Or, or you can be unsaved, think you're saved, and have a false assurance of it. 
But if you're actually saved, you're secure in your salvation. Whether or not you have assurance at a given moment, because our salvation is in Christ and His finished work and not in us. Now, here's where this becomes practical. Let me tell you a little bit of my story. I became a Christian when I was nine. I think, I, when it, over the years, especially when I was a teenager, I had some doubts because of the experience of it. Because, you know, I've been under conviction, and, and, and I mean, I knew the gospel. But uh, I went forward at a revival service one night, and for reasons that I still don't understand, the pastor, instead of opening the Bible and walking me through it, all he did was hug me. And, um, uh, and, I talked to my mom later that night, and but you know, just because maybe kind of experience with us in different times, maybe some just because of how I'm fired, I had some doubts about it. And at some point when I was a teenager, uh, I came to the conclusion that um, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe He died for my sins. I believe He rose from the dead. I've called on His name. I've confessed Him as Lord. I've done what the Bible says. That's all I can do. I'm trusting God to keep His Word, so I'm saved. Now, I think it happened when I was nine. Maybe it happened when I was uh, a teenager. I believe it happened when I was nine. But the security is in the finished work of Christ and in claiming the Word of God. So, Maybe you've had an experience like that, or maybe you're going through some doubts. The, the issue is not in the nature of a particular experience. The issue is, are you repenting and trusting Jesus and acknowledging Him as the Lord of your life? If you are, you're saved. If you're not, you're not. I don't care if you turn cartwheels all the way down the aisle, spoke in tongues, ran around the church, and shouted hallelujah on the, on the, out in the street somewhere. It's Jesus that saves, not a particular experience. But beyond that, salvation is not something that happened to you or it's not just something that happened to you a year or 50 years in the past. The Bible teaches us if you're saved, you have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. You're justified, sanctified, and glorified. That's salvation. And we need to understand that. So, so many times, people put salvation in the past tense. Or so many times, people's testimony is in the past tense. Listen, if you have eternal life, it started the moment you got saved. It's ongoing right now, and it's where you will be and what you will experience in the presence of God forever. But you have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. Now, why does this matter? Well, this matters because when we're doubting our salvation, we're not going to grow spiritually. When we're doubting our salvation, really what we're doing, if we're really saved, is we're looking to ourselves and our works instead of standing firm in the grace of God. Listen, people who believe you can lose your salvation don't understand grace. That's the fundamental issue. 
It's a man-centered instead of a God-centered version of salvation. But even beyond that, you see, if we don't understand that we have been saved, we are being saved, we will be saved, we're adopted children of the Father, blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ, that we're in Christ and that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Him and that He's accepted us and adopted us and He loves us unconditionally and he's our, he's our father and he's a good father and he's with us and he's for us. If we don't understand that, anytime we sin, we're going to get insecure and lack assurance and Satan's going to have a foothold in our life. Anytime something doesn't go right, we go through a trial, we're going to be like, is God mad at me? What's wrong with me? What have I done? Not done enough. Not been good enough. Listen, I've been there. Part of my spiritual journey uh, from sometime in my 30s until now is understanding that we're not only saved by the gospel, that we're sanctified by the gospel, that the gospel is the end-all, be-all of uh, the, the Christian life. Like J.D. Greer says, it's not just the diving board into the pool. It's the whole pool. It's, it's everything. It's what it's all about because the gospel justifies, the gospel sanctifies, ultimately the gospel glorifies. And when you know that, when you know that it's all based on Jesus and what he has done for us and that it's his transforming power saving us and sanctifying us and, and when we know that he's eventually going to glorify us and we know that we haven't arrived yet but God still he's a loving patient father working with us yes he convicts us of our sin but when we sin we don't fall out of salvation we stand in grace when we know that we're putting on the helmet of salvation and we can stand against these punches of the devil because when we know this and we stand firm in this, we have security. See, Satan wants us to be insecure, up and down. He wants us to look to ourselves. But the reason I'm preaching salvation first and faith second is because faith is about the object of our faith. And I think a lot of times we're really trusting in our performance and how well we're living the Christian life instead of what we talked about last week, trusting in the performance of Jesus, his perfect obedience, his perfect righteousness on our behalf. That's where, that's where our security is. Let me show you this in, in a scripture text and then we'll move on and, and, and talk about uh, uh, faith. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 28. It says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Now, um, go back to verse 28. We, we, we quote that verse a lot. All right, it's on t-shirts. It's on little Christian coffee cups, whatever a Christian coffee cup is, and uh, figurines, and, you know, we've got it on uh, paintings or placards or whatever it may be. It's easy to say. But when we don't like the all things of life, do we really believe it? We know that all things, God's working together for good. Well, how do we know that? 
Notice verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. And one thing, if I could be technical uh, for, for just a second, um, when it says predestined here, when he says called, when he says justified, when it says glorified, this is a, a, all of these are in the same tense in the Greek language, which is something, it's a past action with ongoing, unbroken uh, uh, continuance of action to infinity and beyond. So it's saying we're predestined, we're called, we're justified. If we're justified, we're already as good as glorified. I mean, this one verse right here proves that you can never lose your salvation. You see, it's all the work of God. Who's the actor in the verbs here? Is it us? Did you predestine yourself? Did you call yourself? Did you justify yourself? Did you glorify yourself? Can then, if you didn't do it in the first place, can you unpredestine yourself? Can you uncall yourself? Can you unjustify yourself? Or can you unglorify yourself? That means you're secure if you're in Christ. So how do we know that all things are working together for good? Because he's predestined us and because he's called us and because he's justified us and because he's glorified us. Now you say, it doesn't seem like all things are working together for good. Now, let's be real. This is one of our challenges. So we talk about faith. You know, I, I've said a bunch of times here that faith is taking God's word and acting on it. I've said that a bunch of times. And you know what? I've lived that a bunch of times in my life. But if I'm honest, there's also plenty of other times when my faith has been more about my experience and what it seems like is going on than what God's Word actually says. But you see, also sometimes the key to faith is truth. Sometimes we struggle with our faith because we misunderstand the truth. Now, go back to verse 28, if you would, for a second. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God. To those who are the called according to his purpose. Well, what's his purpose? Because the purpose defines the good. And if you misunderstand the purpose, you're going to misunderstand the good and you're going to struggle in your faith. The next verse explains this to us. He says, For, he, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What's the good? The good is being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ because the purpose defines the good, and this is the purpose. So when we define good by God doing whatever we want Him to do and Him making our life whatever we want it to be and our life being easy and comfortable and smooth enough, we're always going to struggle in our faith because we're missing the purpose. 
The purpose is to conform us to the image of Christ. And sometimes trials are going to happen as a part of that happening. Sometimes bad things are going to happen because we live in a fallen world. But if we're in Christ, God is even using those bad things to accomplish his ultimate purpose, which is conforming us to the image of his son, which is our greatest good and his greatest glory. And it's why he's predestined us, called us, justified us, and glorified us. That's our security. When we believe that and know that and understand that and stand firm on that, there's not a whole lot that Satan can hit us in the head with that's going to concuss us. There's not a whole lot that's going to shake us. There's not a whole lot that's going to cause us to be insecure because we're wearing this helmet of salvation. We're secure in him. And see, out of this, out of the fact that God has elected us God has justified us. God has sanct is sanctifying us. He's going to glorify us. Then we see some practical ramifications of this starting in, in, in verse 31. Because here's what he said. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Because all these things are true. God is for us. Because all these things are true, verse 32, he did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also? Freely give us all things. It's what he's saying in Ephesians 1, 3. We're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The next verse, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. In other words, because uh, we're predestined and because we're called and because we're justified and because we're glorified, there Satan or nobody else in this world can bring a charge against you that's going to stick in the court of God. In verse 34, it says, who is he who condemns? And what he's saying is, because there's no charge that can stick against us, there's no condemnation that can be brought against us. Verse 35, he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Because God has predestined you and because he's called you and because he's justified you and because he's glorified you. Nothing can ever separate you from his love. And out of that, verse 37 tells us we are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. If we put on the helmet of salvation, if we stand firm, not in ourselves, but in what Jesus has done for us, we can conquer. We can live out of the victory that Jesus has won, and we'll win these battles that Satan brings against us. How does this relate to spiritual warfare? I want to just conclude this section with an illustration from Greek mythology. In Greek mythology, sailors faced many dangers at sea. I don't know if you've ever heard the story or not, not, but one of the most unusual was that there were some sirens who stood on the, the shore uh, and, and singing, playing these mesmerizing songs to, to lure the sailors to death on the rocky shore. But there were two famous Greeks who were able to sail by them successfully. One was Odysseus, and the way he did it is he stopped up the ears of his men with wax so they couldn't hear, and then had them tie him to the ship's mast. So the way they were able to get by is, you know, this kind of effort of hearing now, them not being able to hear the song and him being tied down where he couldn't steer the ship there. The other one was Orpheus, who was sailing with Jason and the, uh, the Argonauts. He took a different approach. He 
took out his uh, lyre and he began to play an even sweeter song, a more charming melody to his men, and they listened to his song instead of the siren song on the shore. You say, how does this relate to the gospel and spiritual warfare? Here's how it relates. Orpheus pictures the gospel. Odysseus pictures religion. See, religion is the fact that we can pass some te test some, we can get through some temptations and self-effort by restricting our bodies, you know, being tied to a mask or limiting our access to temptation, you know, fill our ears with wax. But ultimately, the way to overcome the devil is not in our own self-effort. I mean, there's a place for those kind of things, but ultimately, it's listening to a sweeter song. If you really want to win spiritual warfare, if you really want to overcome temptation, it happens when, the, when Jesus and when the gospel and our salvation becomes a sweeter song to us than the song of the world does. And how does that happen? It happens when we put on this helmet of salvation, when we meditate on the gospel, when we meditate on Jesus and what he has done for us. Listen, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. I don't care if you've been a Christian 60 years. You have not gotten past the gospel. If you think you can get past the gospel, you're either not saved or you have some terrible theology. It all comes back to the gospel. I need the gospel every day. I preach the gospel to myself way more than I preach it to you guys. I need to be remind myself in Scripture of how much I'm loved and how much I'm accepted. And when I sin, that I can confess my sins and the blood of Jesus Christ is continually cleansing me of my sins. And that God is not mad at me and God is not condemning me. And He loves me and He accepts me and He's a good, good Father. And even when things aren't going maybe the way I want them to, that He's working all things together for my good, our assurance, our hope, our security is in the gospel. It's in putting on the helmet of salvation. But I think that flows into the fact that we equip ourselves for the fight by putting on faith. Now, let's think about the breastplate or the shield of faith in the last few minutes we have together. And, and I intentionally wanted to spend more time on salvation than faith because, once again, the key to faith is the object of faith. If we get the first part of this and it really gets in us, the second part of this will flow out of us. So Bergman and Ventura write again about the shield of faith. They say, if we're to be fully equipped warriors of Christ, we need more spiritual armor. Uh, the apostle seems to draw his imagery of the shield from the shield the Roman infantry used for protection in battle. Unlike the lightweight, small, round buckler shield the cavalrymen carried, this large, heavy, rectangular shield covered the warrior's entire body. Scholars tell us that this fireproof metal-lined shield was door-like, measuring around four to six feet in length and two to three feet in width. And we'll talk more about this in a couple of weeks, but when they were in their formations, Sometimes they would just literally, especially when these, you know, the, the, the flaming arrows were coming at them, they would literally hook their shields together and all of them crouch down uh, behind them. The soldier crouching in battle would be completely protected from flaming arrows. 
Calling forth this imagery, Paul compares faith to a protective shield. As a shield protected a soldier in combat, so also faith spiritually protects us in every situation from what from whatever the devil might launch at us. Now, how does this work? Well, I want to read something to you. It's from Tony Evans. It's one of the most helpful things I've ever read about faith. And I may be a little hypocrite when I read to you because I don't like to be read to. This is something my wife and I, she wants to read things to me. I'm like, let me read it for myself. And so if you don't like to be read to, listen anyway, okay? Uh, act like me at home, at least part of the time. Um, or some of the other time we may argue about it. But. So Tony Evans writes this, writes this. So what is faith? He says, the simple, most direct definition I can give you for faith is that faith is acting like God is telling the truth. That's faith. Acting, I mean, like actions, like God is telling the truth. Another way of saying it, and I wish I could say it like he says it, but I don't have his delivery. Faith is acting as if something is so, even when it appears not to be so, in order that it might be shown to be so, simply because God said so. That's faith. Faith is directly tied to an action done in response to revealed truth. Faith is acting on the truth, whether I feel the truth or not. So when you read the New Testament, faith and obedience are interwoven together. They're not synonymous, but they're really close. You can't have one without the other. At a minimum, they're two sides of the same coin. Faith is acting on the truth whether I feel the truth or not. It's acting on the truth whether I like the truth or not. Jim said sometimes we don't like obedience. We don't like what God's telling us to do. That's not the issue. The issue is it's true. It's acting on the truth whether I agree with the truth or not. Simply put, faith is a function of the mind that shows up in the feet. When we allow our faith to be defined by our feelings, we'll be confused. Faith must have an objective standard by which it is defined, which is truth. In fact, when faith operates by an objective standard of truth, it will eventually dictate our emotions rather than the reverse. You want to change your emotions? And what we talked about already in this series, change what you believe and change what you think. Oftentimes, what is required on our part is taking a step, making the move, doing the thing that God has asked us to do without the accompanying emotions to go along with it. And then he says one other thing that I think is really important. And, and I, I think it's important because it corrects a common misunderstanding. He says, I want to point out that faith does not make God move. There's a lot of teaching in Christian circles that implies or says that, right? Listen, all faith does is access what God has already done. Now think about it. You're predestined. Past tense with continuing action all the way through infinity. You're called. Past tense with continuing action all the way through eternity. You're justified. Past tense with continuing action all the way through eternity. 
you're glorified. Past tense, not your present experience, but guaranteed to be your eternal experience. Once again, that's why Paul also wrote in Ephesians 1.3, we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. Faith is not getting God to bless us. Faith is getting hold of the blessings that we already have in Christ in heavenly places. You don't have to convince God to give you anything that he's not already given you. You just got to get hold of what's already yours. Listen, if you think that faith, this is Tony Evans, if you think that faith makes God move, you're going to be searching for a way to get more faith. However, as a Christian, you already have all the faith you're ever going to need to access anything God is going to do for you. Jesus said that faith the size of a mustard seed can move a tree or a mountain. You don't need more faith. You need to know more truth. Because, and if you don't get anything else I've said today, remember this sentence. You might want to write it down. I'll read it a couple times. He says, faith is the point of access, not the source of power. Faith is the point of access, not the source of power. The power is what is in what God has already declared and done in grace when he deposited the seed of his divine life within you. As the knowledge and presence of God nourishes that seed, it expands and grows, offering you access to all that God has in store for you. All faith is doing is drawing on the grace that God has already put on deposit. That's why everything we have in Christ is by grace through faith. See, that's saving faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's laying hold of Christ and what he has done for us. Uh, John Stott says, faith has absolutely no value in itself. Its value lies solely in its object. Faith is the eye that looks to Christ, the hand that lays hold of him, the mouth that drinks of the water of life. It's like I said when I was talking about me. It's not faith in an experience. It's faith in Jesus and who he is and what he has done for you. Is that where your faith is? Are you resting in, relying on, are you putting all of your spiritual weight on the fact that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead? Have you admitted that you're a sinner? Have you admitted that you have no righteousness in yourself and come to him for his righteousness, confessing him as Lord, turning from your sin, committing your life to him as your life in Christ? If not... He's speaking to you today. Call on the name of Jesus. Place your faith in him. But then, you know, faith isn't just saving faith. Faith is living faith. The Bible says four times, the just, the righteous shall live by faith. Listen, some people want to have a faith to die by. If you've got a real faith, it's a faith you live by every day. Are you trusting in Christ? So if faith is taking God and his word and acting on it, that means whether we feel it or not, we go to Scripture and get the truth. And by the grace of God and by the power of the Spirit, we do what God's word says. 
That means men, if we don't feel like our wife's treating us like uh, she should at a given moment, God still says, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. It, it, it means that, like in a church sense, you know, our mission statement is meeting people where they are and help them become fully devoted followers of Christ. It's based on Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and we've spent the last 18 years now just trying to pursue making disciples, meeting people where they are, and helping them become fully devoted followers of Christ. God's honored that. Why? Because Jesus said, in my authority, you make disciples of all the nations. Why, why uh, you know, do we do hands-on missions? I mean, you know, we're encouraging you to give above and beyond your regular giving to Lottie and Christmas offering. But why is our primary focus on doing hands-on missions? It's because the church is the missionary. That's what the Bible teaches. And as we have acted on God's word and pursued that over the years, listen, God's just dropped opportunities in our life. Most of the stuff that's happened in Honduras and stuff that's beginning to happen in other parts of the world right now is not the part of some grand, grand master plan other than the conviction that the church is the missionary and God orchestrating things to fulfill his word. You know, I had an experience one time in Maryland where we were going through a difficult season in, in, in our church. And I was trying to make some decisions. I'm like, you know, should I even step away? And so I went on a prayer retreat. They had a place that the pastors could go. And I scheduled it for, for two or three days. And I was going to go pray and fast and, and try to make a decision. And um, I stayed less than a day. And you say, are you really that bad at fasting? Um, there may be some truth in that, but that's not why I stayed less than a day this particular time. I opened the Bible. And I went to John chapter 10, and I know, you know, this is, uh, you know, by interpretation talking about Jesus, but it certainly applies to any under-shepherd of a church, I think. He says that the good shepherd lays down his life for, for the sheep, but the hireling runs away. God gave me an answer in the Bible. I need to hang around and, and, and for two more days and go home and eat. I mean, God has spoken uh, through his word. Now I just need to go do what he said. That's what we're talking about with faith, finding out what God says and doing it. It's not some huge feeling. You may feel like you have less faith than anybody in the world. It's irrelevant to do what God says. That's faith. And then ultimately what he's talking about here is the faith to overcome in spiritual warfare. Uh, Peter O'Brien says that... Uh, Believers lay hold of God's resources, especially his power, in the midst of the evil one's attack and appropriate the promises of God on our behalf, confident that he will protect us in the midst of battle. That's what happens when we put on the shield of faith. The shield of faith, you know, like when a, when a space capsule, a, a, you know, space shuttle, whatever, is re-entering uh, the Earth's atmosphere, that's the most dangerous point, and it's because of the heat. And the temperature is somewhere around 1,600 degrees Celsius. And I'm American, so I don't really know how much that is, other than it's really, really hot. How does it not burn up? It doesn't burn up because it has a heat shield. And this shield of faith for believer is kind of like that heat shield when Satan shoots his fiery darts at us. But it's not trusting ourselves. It's the object of our faith. That's why we need the belt of truth. 
That's why we need the sword of the Spirit. That's why we need the breastplate of righteousness. That's why we need the helmet of salvation. Faith is in Christ. Are you trusting Him for your salvation? For your daily life? For your death? And the reason the Bible says faith without works is dead is because faith is taking God His Word and acting on it. So faith is always going to show up in our life. It works because faith is ultimately what we do. What we do shows who or what we're trusting in. Where's your faith?